Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, on almost uh, any day of the week, you can do an online search for miracle stories and be rewarded with uh, more reading that you might ever expect. And most of them that use the word miracle attribute their miraculous recovery or their near miss with death or maybe their triumph over adversity or even their return from a literal, literally heart-stopping event to God, often because there's just no other way to explain it. Just two weeks ago, a little two-year-old Oklahoma girl slipped while she was trying to climb the stairs of the community pool slide. Uh, she fell and landed flat on her back and her head. After the family got her calmed down, she seemed okay, ate a little, and went back to playing like nothing was wrong, until it was. She threw up, lost consciousness, and began to have seizures. She became unresponsive and was flown to the Oklahoma City Medical Center, where doctors intubated her. People began to pray while the doctors ran a barrage of tests, worried that her brain was bleeding, that she could be facing a traumatic brain injury or even death. Well, the families, uh, churches, local businesses all began to pray, pray for her recovery. Hundreds of people. And those prayers were answered. All those tests they ran, expecting the worst, found nothing but the best. Bruising, sure, a small skull fracture, which sounds serious enough to me. But she recovered quickly and was actually released from the hospital the very next day. Her mother later told reporter, uh, I've struggled with my faith. I've struggled with believing that God was real, but this was proof. There's no way my daughter should be 100% walking around at a park. She should still be at a hospital. She should still be unconscious. She should still be sedated. The little girl's grandmother, the one who had taken the kids to the pool, said, it's a miracle. There's no reason for that baby to be here without it being a miracle. But God, he had her. The entire time, he had her. Now, today we're still hoping to hear some miracle stories from uh, Surfside, Florida, and that, that condo building that collapsed. Well, we have two miracle stories in our gospel lesson this morning, and the way they, they intertwine is sort of miraculous in itself. We left Jesus and his disciples on calm waters last week after a sudden storm came up, threatening to, to send their little boat and them with it to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus calmed the storm with just a word. This morning, they're back in Capernaum on the northwest uh, corner of the, the lake where Peter had a house, and it had become sort of a uh, uh, kind of a home base for Jesus and his disciples when they were working in Galilee. Uh, so he was no stranger to the people there. In fact, it was in Capernaum that he'd healed a paralytic. He called Matthew, who was working as a tax collector there, to be one of his disciples. He'd met with John the Baptist's disciples there, uh, and he always drew a crowd. Now, from what we read about Jesus, he seems like he was a pretty likable guy. Even unbelievers couldn't help but be drawn to him. He was a, a sympathetic, uh, suffering servant sort of figure, never capitalizing on his miracles, never trying to cash them out. And yet he was persecuted by the very community he had come to help. Uh, Jewish scribes accused him of blasphemy uh, and, and, and they questioned him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees looked down on him um, for, for healing on the Sabbath, and they conspired with the authorities to destroy him. Ironically, it was these two groups that had the most to lose if people started uh, following Jesus in mass, embracing him. 
the common folk at that time had really nothing to lose by embracing him then and everything to gain. And who knows? Not only did they love to listen to his stories and love to hear him teach, might even catch him working a miracle. So it's not unusual that there were a lot of people gathered around him on this day when a man named Jairus, a synagogue ruler, shoves his way through the crowd and drops to his knees in front of Jesus begging for help. This man was a lay leader in the local synagogue. Men like him carried out the day-to-day -day duties that were required and, and general, had general oversight. But today he's on an urgent personal mission. Lord, he pleads, my little girl is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be may, made well and live. Well, the rush is on to beat the clock. You can hear the, the need for speed in his request, the kind of urgency only a desperate parent's plea can convey. We have to hurry. There's not much time. His child's life was already drifting in that shadowy place between life and death. All available medical help had failed, and even though he was turning to Jesus as a hope of last resort, the Lord agrees to go with him without comment. The multitudes, having just heard about Jesus' most recent exploits, go with him, eager to see a miracle for themselves. And you can imagine them jostling and bumping and, and uh, shoving each other a little bit in a nice way, I guess, um, so that they could get the, the best view, uh, just in case something like that happened. They, in fact, one of, some of the Bible translations say they thronged about him. Uh, that's a great way to translate it. Mark is painting a, a powerful word picture here. And then something very odd happens, doesn't it? Jesus gets sidetracked. The words recorded for us by Mark don't really reveal uh, the emotion that must have poured through Jairus' plea for help, right? Please, Lord, come quickly. Come now. My little girl is dying. Hurry. There's not much time. Jesus, touched by the man's love for his daughter and the faith he's shown in Jesus' ability to heal, agrees to go with him. But the crowds make for slow progress, pressing against them on every side. Suddenly, Jesus stops and he asks, who touched me? Jairus has got to be wondering, who cares? The disciples who are having trouble keeping up because of the crowds themselves must have been thinking, who hasn't? But something else is going on here. There's a story within a story. The woman who caused the distraction was desperate too. Where Jairus had received 12 years of joy and delight from his little girl, a woman had suffered and endured 12 years of misery from a continual bleeding. Nobody could cure it, and she'd approached Jesus unnoticed. In addition to her physical ailment, her condition was also a social stigma. According to Leviticus 15, she would have been pronounced ritually unclean. That means she would have been a virtual outcast for the last 12 years. She couldn't partake in any of the religious observances. Um, she couldn't uh, have any public contact uh, with anyone without defiling them if, if they happened to touch. If she was married, she would likely have been uh, ordered to separate from her husband as well. Doctors of the day hadn't even been able to diagnose her, let alone heal her. She paid them to prescribe their useless remedies until there was no money left. And in spite of everything, her condition only got worse. That's really not surprising considering, considering the state of medicine in the first century. The woman had probably suffered as much from her doctor's cures as she had from the disease. Um, a man called Pliny the Elder, he was a first century philosopher, Roman philosopher. He wrote a whole encyclopedia. Um, he writes that physicians in that day were accustomed to prescribing 
doses of curious concoctions made from things like the ashes of a burnt wolf's skull, or stag's horns, or heads of mice, or eyes of crabs, or owl's brains, or my personal favorite, livers of frogs. For dysentery, a powdered horse's teeth were administered, and a cold was cured by kissing a mule's nose. So bleeding, broken, and bankrupt, she turns to Jesus. Mark says she had heard the reports about Jesus. So someone had told her the good news about the Lord. They told her, and she believed, and she came. That's often how it works, isn't it? It starts with just a story. But like the aristocratic Jewish religious leader Nicodemus, who had sought Jesus out under the cover of darkness, this woman, too, had come in secret. Maybe she was tired of being poked and prodded. Uh, surely she was over the unwelcome uh, publicity that her, her uh, condition gave her, and that, but that a religious law actually made her a, a social outcast, and she was reluctant to bring any more attention to herself. She'd worked her way up behind Jesus in the crowd until she was close enough to touch him, at least touch his robe, reasoning and believing that just a touch would be enough to cure her. Like Jairus, she heard of this man, Jesus, heard that he was in the region that day, but conditioned by her years of rejection and isolation, uh, she knew that the best audience she could even hope for was a kind of secret healing, where merely touching the hem of Jesus' garment would be enough to work a cure. Now, aside from not yet being a dedicated follower of the Lord, there was faith there. She reached out, and, and immediately she knew that something had happened to her after touching Jesus' robe, something wonderful and something that was going to change her forever. And it felt good, but those feelings followed her faith. Who touched me? There was no way the Lord was going to let her just slip away. He knew that she was out there in the crowd somewhere, and that he was one of two people who knew who she was. He wanted her to know that it wasn't just a fleeting moment of joy brought about by her feelings, that it was a blessing brought on by her faith. There's a great line here. Mark says that Jesus perceived that power had gone out from him. That doesn't mean it was involuntary. In fact, Luke tells a story about a time a great multitude of people had gathered to hear Jesus, and many had come hoping to be healed. He says, all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Gives you a kind of sense, doesn't it, the sort of power that Jesus had, the kind of power he was filled with. And while the power to heal all the physical problems we, is what we tend to focus on, and it was persuasive, it was really the least impressive power of them all. He'd come to heal and save people from the power of, and burden of sin by faith in him, the the physical miracles were just a means to get people's attention so that they would listen to him and finally realize who he really was. True man, but also true God who had come to save us. Jesus knew who touched him, and the woman knew. And then he waited. He waited while she made up her mind. You know, she'd had faith enough to seek him out, but would she have enough faith to, con to confess that faith in a very public way? Did she have enough faith in her faith, because you can't keep that kind of faith to yourself. A secret disciple is a pretty weak disciple. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Would her faith and her feeling give way to fear? No, it didn't. 
Now she comes forward and she tells her whole story. And in the process, she learns something firsthand about our Lord, that he was a loving, caring, compassionate God. It wasn't about to take her gift of healing away, which is something she may have been worried about. He simply wanted to commend her for her trust and faith in him. Daughter, he tells her, now she's part of his family by faith, right? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. But the, you know, the rest of the story is, is that what he really said was literally, your faith has saved you. She'd been healed on every level. That's why he'd come to earth, not to show off his unique powers, but to save us all through the willingness to trust in him that faith brings. Physical healing is only good for this life. Jesus was all about forgiveness and salvation that carries us right into the next. Well, meanwhile, the clock is ticking on a little girl's life. You can almost hear her father thinking, come on, we got to go. There isn't much time. What are you thinking? And you can't hold it against him. Think about it. This woman had been bleeding for the last 12 years and it hadn't killed her yet. Surely a little triage would be in order. Heal the woman, heal his daughter. You know, stop the bleeding, sure to die. What do you think would be more urgent? Right? He must have been beside himself. In fact, as Jesus was talking to the woman, some men come from Jairus' house with the worst news ever. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? You know, you can only imagine the look of grief that must have come across Jairus' face. Uh, his world had just come crashing down around him. You know, and for what? You can even begin to think about the, the, the anger that must have been rising up within him. As he, as it, you know, it finally struck home that if Jesus hadn't allowed himself to be interrupted, this little girl might have been saved. Where there's life, there's hope. But now, Jairus had asked Jesus to come and lay hands on his little girl so that she might be made well and live. In the original Greek, uh, he asked Jesus to come so that she might be saved and live. Again, that's the real bottom line in all this. Jesus can heal and restore people to health, but he really came to rescue people from sin and death. And that's the one miracle that everyone needs. He overhears the servant's word. He hadn't missed the ruler's distress either. And he turns to him and he says, don't fear, only believe. I'm not sure Jairus was convinced yet. He'd just seen the power of faith work a miracle in healing that, that woman's life. Uh, but, but in the meantime, while they were delayed, his little girl had died. He was surely torn between faith and fear. And faith and fear pull in different directions, don't they? He must have seen, Jesus must have seen the desolation, despair that swept over his face. All this ruler could see was an empty bed in an empty corner of an empty house. He'd been to too many funerals. Now, while there was life, there was hope, but people didn't come back from the dead. Faith and fear. Faith and fear, pulling in, in different directions. Jesus had told the woman, your faith has saved you, and he just told Jairus, don't be afraid. Only believe. It's not easy, is it? Overcoming your fears with your faith. And yet every one of us who has been brought to faith through the waters of holy baptism or has experienced the Lord's own personal real presence in the sacrament of Holy Communion, has experienced the miracle of a sinner washed clean through no effort of our own. Just faith. 
But when this fallen world we live in delivers a personal blow that shakes our faith to our foundations, fear steps in and tries to pull us away from our loving God. Many of us, most of us probably, have experienced something like it, but only a few of us know the crisis of faith Jairus experienced when he received the news that his little girl was gone. He accompanies Jesus to his home where they discover professional mourners already there doing what they were paid to do, weeping and wailing. Jesus asked them, what are you doing here? The child's not dead. She's just sleeping. Well, I got a few laughs from him. But then he sends them all outside. And when only Jairus and his wife and Peter, James, and John are left, <clears throat> Jesus goes over to the child and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And with those few words, her soul is snatched from the jaws of death and her pale cheeks blush red with new life. Her eyelids flutter and then they open and she sits up and then stands up and then walks around just like that. Twelve years old. I wonder if Jesus was reminded of the time that Mary and Joseph found him in the temple with the teachers there. Remember what he said? They'd lost him. They were frantic. They didn't know where he was. Uh, worried sick. And he told them, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Well, right now, in Jairus' house, he's doing the father's business. By demonstrating his power even over death itself, he was revealing his identity not just as the man Jesus, but as Jesus, the Son of God. His disciples would be his witnesses after his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. And from that point on, they would become his, sort of his inner circle. And the miracle? Jesus had raised that little girl to life physically, but even more importantly, she'd been raised to new life spiritually. And so have most of you, through the waters of baptism, through the word of promise. So, you know, don't be a secret disciple. We've got an awesome message to share about a great unconditional love and a powerful, amazing God. Miracles still happen, and people still need to know. Take the time to tell them a story, a miraculous story. Tell them the story about Jesus. Amen. Now, may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gifts.